the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This ends the reading. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Expectations. Expectations are, they're fickle, and and you could even say dangerous. How many times have I gone to a movie with really high expectations, and then when the movie just didn't live up to the hype that I had built for it, I left the theater disappointed and annoyed, let down by my expectations. But the inverse is true as well. How many times have I gone to a movie not expecting much and been totally blown away by how great the movie was? You know, the movie may not even have been that great, but because my expectations were so low, they were met and exceeded. And so I leave the theater feeling good, feeling happy. My expectations have been met. My expectations have been met. Our expectations often color our experiences. They're a first impression of sorts, and first impressions stick with us well past the first meeting. They follow us around and inform our opinion of someone for a long time, and, and it can be a long time, it can take a long time to undo or reverse a first impression, whether that impression was good or bad, and it's the same with expectations. In our text this morning, Jesus is addressing some of the expectations of the disciples. And he's addressing expectations specifically relating to his kingdom. Now, it was believed at the time that the Messiah was going to establish a kingdom for the people of Israel. That he would raise an army, kick out the Romans, and establish his throne. That he would rule a physical kingdom of everlasting peace. So the expectation was for a political Messiah, not a spiritual one. A political kingdom here, physical, that could be seen, easily understood, that would bring peace and freedom to a people who could only remember conflict and oppression. Often this viewpoint is attributed to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but it would have been shared by the disciples as well. This was the expectation of the promised Messiah. It's what they had been taught as they grew up. No doubt some of them had joined his band of merry men, became his disciples in the first place because of the positions of power that they would assume once the kingdom was established. And while that expectation changed for many of them over the course of their time with Jesus, it it didn't change for all of them. Jesus is failing to meet the expectation of being a political savior is understood to be one of the reasons that Judas betrayed him. So at least one of the disciples was unable to get past his initial expectations. Expectations. 
expectations of the kingdom. What are your expectations of the kingdom of God? If we were to prescribe to the beliefs of the prosperity gospel crowd, then, then we would believe that God wants those in his kingdom to be happy, to be well-fed, and to be prosperous. That sounds like the kind of expectation that humans would have on a God that professes his love for them. That sounds like the kind of kingdom we would expect him to establish. One where the people he loves are physically well taken care of. If we would prescribe to the beliefs of the theology of glory crowd, then, then we would believe that God not only wants those in his kingdom to obey him, but that he will reward them for their obedience. They're like the rich young ruler asking, what must I do? What must I do? Be good, do good, and God will bless you, we are told by this crowd. And this also appear, appeals to our sense of fairness and rightness. And this also sounds like a kingdom that a just God would establish. This sounds like the kind of kingdom that it makes sense to us. A kingdom of order and rules and reward. These takes on the kingdom of pop are popular, man. Like they, they sell a lot of books. They pack churches. They get you a lot of clicks and views and likes. They make sense to us. They fit our understanding of society. They fit our understanding of, of how the world works or how we believe it should work if things were running correctly. And so we like them. They're appealing to us. But are they accurate? Are they accurate? Are those the kind of kingdoms that Jesus outlines in this parable of the mustard seed and the yeast? No. They aren't. They may be successful at putting people in the pew and gaining followers on the internet, but that understanding of success doesn't really have any place in talk about the kingdom of God. For as we see with the mustard seed and the yeast, God's kingdom tends to be unimpressive and under the radar by our standards. Leslie Newbegin explains it this way. He writes, success in the sense of growth in numbers of committed Christians is not in our hands. It is the work of God, of the Holy Spirit, to call men and women to faith in Jesus. And the Spirit does so in ways that are often mysterious and beyond any possibility of manipulation or even of comprehension by us. We see this thought clearly supported in our parable this morning. We see that the kingdom of God operates in small, seemingly insignificant ways. We see this in the seed. A mustard seed is not big, strong, and exciting. A mustard seed is, is small. It's pretty unimpressive and rather insignificant looking. And we would rather hear about an oak... Look at the seed of the oak, the acorn. It's, it's strong and tough. It's large and it protects the little seed inside. It grows to an impressive tree that reaches impressive heights and looks the part in our eyes. But that's not what we get from the mouth of Jesus. We don't get the acorn. Instead, we get the mustard seed. And though the mustard seed does not become an oak, it grows 
from an insignificant seed to the largest tree in the garden, the largest plant in its context, and the birds find shelter in its branches. It starts as something seemingly insignificant and grows into a shelter of protection. And in the kingdoms outlined by the prosperity crowd and the theology of glory crowd, we we see built into their essence a set of social requirements. Membership in those understandings of the kingdom are reflected in everyday life. If you are in the kingdom, you are prospering. If you are in the kingdom, you are earning your citizenship through moral living. And so those of us who, who may not be prospering and those of us who may be really struggling through a season of sin find ourselves begging at the gates, excluded from the kingdom, unworthy. But yeast does not discriminate. Yeast doesn't care if the flour is grade A, top of the line, super expensive flour, or if it's the cheapest, roughest stuff on the shelf. Yeast doesn't care if you're using white flour or whole wheat brown flour or dark rye pumpernickel flour. Yeast does not discriminate. There is no bread dough that yeast will not work in and through. And as yeast works through the dough, it creates a chemical reaction. It reacts with the the other elements of the dough mixture, and and it causes growth. It gives flavor and aromas to the dough, enhancing it, sometimes to get the desired texture That dough that has been raising, it needs to be beat back down. I remember uh, growing up when mom would make dough. We'd have these big Tupperware containers and the dough would like pour over. And I I loved like dough making day. I loved bun day because we typically we make buns. And, and, you know, you get the trays of buns. You stick them in the oven and the whole house just begins to smell like buns. And then you just, you just, it's almost like you're waiting there with the butter, right? As soon as those things come out, you're cutting those things open and, and putting the butter on there. It all melts and that, that. Bun just like melted down here. It was fantastic. That was the best part of Bun Day. Second best part of Bun Day was when when we get that that big bowl of dough, and Mom would be like, "All right, it's time to beat it down." And we got to roll up our sleeves and hang out and just start smacking that dough, right? And you just gotta like unwail on this thing, and, and the dough like shrinks and it goes down, and it turns into this like much smaller bunch again. But that beating. That hitting, that smacking that dough back into its place, back into shape, back into that smaller form, that did not stop the yeast from working. It wasn't a one-time shot. Though the dough has been beaten down, the yeast is still there, building it back up, raising it, raising the dough to be what the maker desires it to be, what the maker intends for it to be. The passage preceding our text this morning sheds more light on the unassuming inclusivity of the kingdom of God. It's the Sabbath day, and Jesus is teaching, and a woman is brought to him, and she's all like, she's all shriveled up. Her, her back and her joints, they're, they're not able to, to stretch fully. She can't reach her full height. She's all, she's all shriveled, and she's just kind of walking, and, and she's got her cane and her support, and she needs help. And they bring this this woman to Jesus, and he heals her. He frees her from this oppression. She frees her from this disease, from this 
from, from this oppression. And the ruler of the synagogue in the area, the man charged with keeping the law, who is in league with those monitoring Jesus, there's a group of people following Jesus around, making sure he's not doing something he's not supposed to do, right? Like, ah, we got to like keep tabs on this guy, make sure he doesn't cross the line. Well, this dude is part of that group, and he sees this, and he gets mad. And he says, there are six days in which you ought to work, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. So he's saying there are other days of the week. There are six other days of the week. On those days are the days you can be healed. You shouldn't be getting your healing done on the Sabbath day. This isn't the time. You shouldn't be here getting this done. And the Lord answered him. He said, you hypocrites, do not to each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He says, what are you talking about? If your ox needs to drink on the Sabbath, you untie the knot so he can go to the water. And you're telling me this woman who has been bound by Satan for 18 years shouldn't be freed, shouldn't be healed, those bonds shouldn't be loosed? I shouldn't untie that knot on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. That is the context into which we get this parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, a woman on the fringes of society, a woman kept low by the harassment of Satan, a woman who has been neglected by the established church, someone who people don't believe there's any hope for, and who has probably given up hope on herself. She is set free. She is set free. Do you feel like you are on the margins of society? Do you struggle to feel accepted by your peers, by your elders? Does your sin make you feel unworthy of being part of the God's kingdom? Do you feel beat down, discouraged, anxious, unqualified, scared? Do you feel broken? Do you feel broken? Man, if that's you this morning, I have really good news. For Jesus came to heal the broken, to redeem the broken. Jesus came to build a kingdom from the broken. Christ came to set you free, free from the guilt and the shame, free from the sin that so easily entangles. And though we will continue to sin because of Christ, we can fight that sin. Because of Christ, we can stand tall. Because of Christ, we can be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But scandal, cry the church leader. Scandal, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. This isn't who it's supposed to happen to. This isn't when it's supposed to happen. What are you doing? How could you think to treat things that we have made sacred so callously? Come back when you better fit the criteria. Come back when the timing is right. 
The kingdom of God is not concerned with criteria or timing. The kingdom of God is concerned with lost souls and moves in ways that are counter to society's standards. For God rules a kingdom of scandalous grace. Your past does not disqualify you from being a citizen in this kingdom. Your current struggle does not disqualify you from being a citizen in this kingdom. And your future struggles do not disqualify you from being a citizen of this kingdom. It can be so tempting to buy into the theology of glory and believe that we earn God's favor. That we participate in our salvation. It's, so, it's just so ingrained in us. It's an expectation that is drilled into us from the time we can remember the drilling. Actions and consequences. Good actions equal good consequences like expressions of love and favor, a pay raise, and job security. Bad actions equal bad consequences like discipline and lack of trust and lack of respect, being fired or booted from a relationship. And so it is natural for us to take this to our relationship with God and try to earn his favor like we have tried to earn the favor of those around us our whole lives. So that we can gain his love, favor, and trust and so that we don't have to worry about being booted from the relationship. But instead, the Bible teaches us a theology of the cross. It tells us of a God who loves us, who wants relationship with us, and will never leave us or forsake us, despite what we have done, are doing, or will do. It tells us that we can never be good enough. We can never do enough, never say enough, never think enough good to make up for how messed up, how broken we are. And yet God loves us anyway. And so Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died for your sin, for my sin, and in our place so that we might be reconciled with the Father, that we might have relationship with the living God and that through the Holy Spirit, which we are given by God through faith and in baptism, God is shaping us, shaping us into the citizens of his kingdom. And that journey, that shaping, isn't necessarily a glorious transition right away. In fact, it's often an unassuming and even unimpressive one. I think we can get too caught up in the example of the butterfly. We see ourselves as the larva and then the worm and then we are given faith in Christ And then we enter the cocoon and and we expect to pop out beautiful butterflies and in all things express the beauty of our creator. How often I feel more like a moth than a butterfly. Or maybe I'm a beautiful butterfly for a little while at at certain times, but then my, my colors fade. My antenna gets a little bent. My body gets a bit more plump than it's supposed to, and I can't fly as well as I feel like a butterfly for Jesus is supposed to fly. And I don't look like I think a butterfly for Jesus is supposed to look. 
And so I wonder if I can even be a butterfly for Jesus at all. And what's missing from that story is that when my colors fade and my antenna gets bent and my body bloats, I can bring all of that to the cross. God asks me to bring all of that to him. And when I repent of my sinful actions and thoughts, he forgives me. And the shine comes back to my wings. And my antenna is straightened and my body is slimmed down. And he teaches me, instructs me how to fly straight. Knowing that I will continue to fail. But encouraging me and loving me along the way. And this is a daily, hourly process. It's not a one-time thing. And then I maintain It's not a one-time thing. It's a process. I am constantly in need of a tune-up of grace, of forgiveness, of love and affection from my God and my Savior. Just like the yeast working its way through the whole dough, And the tree of protection growing from the small mustard seed. This is a process. It takes time. It's not an overnight sensation. As you make your way through life, sometimes running, sometimes stumbling, sometimes laying sprawled out in the middle of the road, know that God has not given up on you. And he will not give up on you. Know that God loves you and he will not stop loving you. Know that he has forgiven you and will continue to forgive you. And know that he is with you every step of the way. Let me leave you with some words from my good friend Eric Sorensen pertaining to this passage. Eric writes this. He writes, here's the deal. Oftentimes, you may not sense or feel that God is working his kingdom personally in your life. You still seem to struggle with the same old sins. Your attitude just doesn't seem to be all that different. But let this parable assure you that he is working. His kingdom may not look as impressive as you would expect, but he's not done. Trust him because his word declares this awesome truth. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, fantastic, and awesome God we serve. Amen.